What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm your host, Jason Greenblatt. With tensions rising across the world, diplomacy is needed perhaps now more than ever. During my time as former White House Middle East envoy and as one of the chief architects of peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors, I've had the chance to witness the power of diplomacy firsthand, and today, I would like to share that perspective with you. Shalom, salam, and welcome to The Diplomat. A few days ago, I caught a reference in the news to the flooding disaster happening in Pakistan. To my surprise, other than that brief news clip and a few others, I've seen little else. I get that the news cycle is so full of breaking news these days, there's plenty going on in the United States and around the world, but I would have thought that a disaster like this would have garnered more attention. I wanted to bring more attention to the plight of Pakistan as a result of these devastating floods, so I reached out to someone I know here in New Jersey. He connected me with Nair Khawaja a retired air commander from Pakistan who's now a public school principal in Rashidabad, Pakistan. Take a listen as Nair describes what his country's going through right now as a result of this flooding disaster. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. So I'm here today with retired air commander Nair Kawaja. Did I pronounce that correctly, sir? Yep. Okay. okay, just about, just about. <laughs> okay, and you're a principal of a school, and uh, I really appreciate you joining me because obviously Pakistan is going through some very difficult time right now. There's very little media coverage of this in the United States. I'm disappointed mm-hmm. and surprised, and uh, I would like you to share what you know about it so my listeners can hear about it. So my understanding is that so far the floods in Pakistan have killed over 1,300 people, They've displaced over 50 million people and have submerged more or less 33% of Pakistan. As awful mm-hmm. as these numbers are, I think the data I have is actually a few days old already. Can you give us current statistics so people can understand the magnitude? Okay, I think uh, what is happening is that uh, the official data is being released on about a five to six days basis. Because right now, wherever you get the data, is going to be something like about two or three days old because they're compiling and that obviously it's a dynamic situation. The figures are changing because like only about day for yesterday, a couple of our villages, villages got inundated in Sindh. So that data is going to get compiled and the figures are going to change. But as of the last that I had the data with me, I mean, I'll just keep checking with my data with you that nationwide we have about 80 districts which have been declared climate-stricken areas. And out of these are the districts, we've got 31 from Baluchistan, 23 from Sindh, 17 from KP, and 6 from Gilgit-Baltistan. Now, this is the different districts in different provinces and autonomous regions that have been affected so far with the flood. 
and uh, displacement, practically speaking, figures, whatever we come across, are really not anywhere close to the actual one because it's going to take a while for us to count because I had taken my boys around in the flood-struck areas about uh, 50, 60 kilometers from where I am. And uh, the picture is fairly bleak because the water has entered almost every other field or real estate or land or whatever you want to call it. But all the people who are living over there had to move out or to high places, high spots in the area, just about to avoid water. And at places you've got shoulder deep water, which is there and it's going to be there for quite some time to come before it is drained out of that place. Because uh, if you're aware of this topography of the country, most of the drainage is going to be through the canals. And those canals are committed right from, say, for example, Sakhar in this case, if you look at the map, it's way up north in uh, Sindh. And from there, it, they're going to start pumping the water out or draining the water out to the sea. And uh, a safe estimate is that by the time they reach my city, that is Tandualayar, it's going to be another 15 days from now. Because I was talking to the irrigation department, finding a slot for vacating, I mean, draining the water in my area. And this basic figure given to me was that by the time we have space for you, it will be 15 days from today. That means we've got to survive with this water for another about fortnight or so, as a matter of fact. So this would be a disaster for any country, right? Is Pakistan able to cope with it? How are, you, how are they coping with this? It's so terrible. I think right now the major part of the activity is being looked after by a whole lot of uh, what you call uh, relief agencies in the private sector and uh, a lot of organizations which are doing it. There's some people who are doing it at the personal level, but most of the thing is being handled by our uh, philanthropic organizations or welfare organizations, which have taken on themselves. And uh, the ones that I am aware of are working in all the provinces, a matter of fact, they have their offices all over the place. People are donating things very generously and they are reaching out to people because uh, as usual, the aid from outside is just about, they really can't call it timely because by the time they evaluate, they figure out, they send you things, then quite a bit of those things really do not fit the environment where they're going to be sending it because you've got to be aware of the culture and the living style of the people over there. And uh, a lot of stuff that reaches over there, like right now, food security is the basic problem. All the people who are sitting outside on the floods, they need something to eat, to live on. Yes, they are on survival, but even on survival, you need something, at least one square meal a day, if not more. So while we're getting a lot of tents, we're getting a lot of clothes, etc., etc., but uh, food-wise, I think we are having a tough time because a lot of our crop has been destroyed. Our millions of rupees worth of crop has been destroyed. Vegetables are gone. The sugarcane is affected. The next crop sowing is getting delayed. So if you work it out, the primary problem that you're going to face with over here is number one, food security. Number two, post-flood diseases. Waterborne diseases because there's hardly any clean water available for people to drink. And with a couple of million people sitting outside with no source of water, they're going to end up drinking the contaminated water and then you're going to have all kinds of waterborne diseases, typhoid, Malaria is, of course, another rampant thing in this part of the country, world, as a matter of fact. And the world goes on. I mean, you've got a beeline of diseases, which are waterborne diseases. So we need to look after that. Probably we need some 
kind of an activity with which we could clean the water and make it drinkable. Maybe we don't talk of uh, RO plants, but at least something is going to make the water clean and drinkable, as a matter of fact, consumable by human beings. We need some help for them to save their flocks of animals because a lot of those people, their livelihood depends on them. Their goats, their sheep, their cows, their buffaloes, their livelihood depends on those. So we, if we keep sending food for the humans and these guys lo- lose their animals, so once they go back home, they have nothing to go on. Quite a few of them, if not all of them, because their livelihood is dependent on some use it for milks, others use it, sell it for meat and whatever they use it for. But then that's the livelihood over here. It's a cascading effect of, of troubles, meaning there's the immediate issue Correct. of food security, but then we also almost immediately have to take care of preventing the next problems, which range from severe health concerns. And, and as a, This is the time we should be getting for the waterborne diseases, but the, we've already been into it for almost of, over a fortnight now. So the waterborne diseases are going to start off now. And they're going to take an epidemic form if we do not take hold of them now. Because we've got to reach all kinds of places, far-flung areas, where we've got to provide them all whatever they need, basic medical assistance. I'm not looking for a jazzy hospital or anything of that sort. Basic few medicines which are going to look after the waterborne diseases and, of course, whatever wounds they may be having because of insect bites and whatever else. Because Insect bites are rampant right now in that part of the country and all over the flood areas, as a matter of fact, because they're sitting in the open, water all around them, nights are dark, no electricity, whatever. Some of the people you just might see, they have those solar panels and they've got the lights going on, but uh, not much of it. So, practically speaking, sky is the limit right now as to the problems are concerned. And solutions, of course, have to be compatible with those. And what are the countries that have been sending assistance so far? What are some of the main countries? Main countries that uh, I have bumped into the list, essentially speaking, what you keep getting from the media, we're talking of essentially speaking Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey, China, Uzbekistan, United Arab Emirates. We've had some commitment from Canada, a couple of million dollars, probably some amount of money is pledged by the United States of America also. And uh, airplanes are flying in, but remember one thing, what, how much can the largest airplanes carry? A couple of tons. And when you translate a couple of tons into number of pieces, you're talking of about almost about uh, 33 million people. If you read th- divide 33 by even 10, you still have a large number. That's what I'm saying. If you convert them to families, you still got a very large number to cater for. So whatever is coming by air, it's going to take quite a while to even meet 25% of the requirement. And India and Pakistan have a, a long and complicated relationship. Let's just say that. Has India been able to help? Has India been willing to help? And is India's help welcome? India has thus far not extended any virtue. But if you go by the diplomatic norms, last time when they got into trouble, we offered, we were standing by to deliver it to them. But Mr. Moody point black, refused to accept any aid from us. And uh, if you actually want to know the sentiments of the people, I've been talking to some of the people, and they even today over lunch I was talking to some people, and uh, what they had come up with was that they had garnered this, the guy was trying to sell them some Indian products, they refused to buy them. Because remember one thing, you are talking of the rural people. 
the rural people have different sentiments altogether. There's a world of difference because you could talk to an, uh, what you call a liberate kind of a character. He must, might have different thoughts. But right now, the people worst affected by the flood and need help are mostly in the rural areas. And rural people have some very, very strong ideas about such like things. And as far as help from India is concerned, I have my doubts if any one of them is going to accept it. So I'll ask. And a, why not? Sorry, go ahead, sir. I mean, uh, I think we need to handle it in a way that we really don't look too much outside and make it a domestic issue. Because my experience with aid, I mean, I've done uh, relief operations in the 2005 earthquake, also the worst earthquake that Pakistan had. And we had a lot of multinational agencies working in Azad Kashmir. My school also had a camp over there. I'm not this school. I'm the school that I am from, my alma mater. I was running that camp with my sons. And uh, a whole lot of stuff that had come from abroad was not usable by the locals. Very fancy looking things. They were not usable by the locals. They were basically looking for three or four odd items. It was cold area. They were looking for tents which could keep them warm. They're looking for some clothes. And of course, food as always, they were looking for food because everything had gone for the success of the earthquake was concerned. Locals will help. This time also they're helping, I guess, some amount of financial aid which could help us fabricate things ourselves and supply. And uh, then hope and pray for the best. So I'm going to ask a, a follow-up question to that. I, I imagine I'll know your answer based on the answer about India, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, if Israel were to offer help, Israel and Pakistan, of course, don't have diplomatic relations. Would uh, those affected accept that kind of help? I think before I reach the affected, we need to handle it at the national level, as a matter of fact. And if we have to take our cue from uh, the message that the father of the nation gave us, he set some predetermined parameters for us to talk to Israel. Yes, we need some of that to be done. And by all means, my religion does not teach me to hate a Jew. There's nothing in my religion that says that I need to hate a Jew. But at the same time, it definitely draws a certain lines which govern our relationship. So, Jew hating is out. But those lines have to be followed to develop a mutual relationship between us and Israel. I hope that uh, to some extent answers the questions, if not it totally. It answers my question. And look, I'm Jewish, you're Muslim, and uh, we're talking about humanity. So uh, the conversation has to start somewhere. So thank you for that honest answer. Why do you think there's so little coverage of this in the U.S. media? Do you have any sense or what are people saying as to why there might be so little coverage of this? Do you believe in conspiracy theories? Uh, typically, no. Do you believe in conspiracy <laughs> theories? no, but let's, let's hear it. <laughs> see, <laughs> you see, our relations with the United States of America have been that love-hate relationship. Since 1947, these 75 years have been a roller coaster all along because when we were needed, we were the best of allies. When the job was done, we were propagating terrorism. 
right now, whatever my country is going through, I think United States at the government level is also waiting and watching as to which way the dust settles and what comes out. Because there's a subtle difference between the people who govern Pakistan right now and the people who are trying to take over from them. There's one side which wants an Pakistan with an independent policy, a Pakistan which must not fight other people's proxy wars, a Pakistan which should be a friend with everybody around in peace, in propagating peace, in promoting peace, and live peacefully itself, coexisting with its neighbors, resolving mutual conflicts amicably and mutually. And last resort, as a matter of fact, despite being a military man myself, I think war is not even last resort solution to problems. It's just about threat of use of force to resolve the issues. That's what the grand strategy teaches you. That threat of use of force should help you resolve issues. But when you physically start using force, then what is happening in the world right now, it happens. Because you can start a war, you can't end it. The United States started so many wars in the last history that at least I know of in my 70 years, all that I have seen, none of the wars ending the way it's supposed to end because you enter a war without an exit strategy and you get in a lot of trouble. So because it's wait and watch, at the government level, there's not much that even I've heard so far that they're talking of. A couple of, not even a million dollars in terms of committed aid, etc. Well, I guess under circumstances, that just might be the best the United States can do. Because we are through, going through dire straits economically, financially, whatever you want to call it. But uh, I guess we'll pull through it, inshallah. With or without, we will pull through it. God willing the only indeed. thing is we'll have to tighten our belt. And we'll do that. God willing, indeed. So you're the principal of a public school in Rashidabad. How nervous are your students? And uh, has your school and have other schools been able to help the students who've been displaced in the affected areas? I think the first thing that we did was I talked to them, explained things to them, and then we took them to those people. We went for flood relief operations ourselves with the boys, got them involved, made them realize the trouble that people are in and what best we can do by virtue of being well-placed in society in a place, a school like ours. We've, Alhamdulillah, we got all the best that we one could possibly get. So communication is what sorted out. And then, of course, seeing is believing. We took them. We've had two rounds so far. And by the end of this week, we're planning another couple of rounds, taking the boys around, physically helping those people. They go and distribute rations, clothes, food. They go and give them first aid physically themselves. If you want, I'll ask uh, Parvez to send you some pictures of our last activity. You'll get an idea what, how far we're getting our boys involved. Once they're involved, they are one of them. So the panic is gone. Now they as a matter of fact, planning as a matter of themselves. The, like, my ex-students are working in Baluchistan. They're in contact with me. I, only the other day I got somebody, one of the boys message to give them some financial help from here because they need money out there in the Zirabad district. And a uh, whole lot of them, as a matter of fact, are working in Baluchistan, my own ex-students. So we've got them involved in a manner that they don't have to sit and fret. They physically go experience it, help them out, and they feel a whole lot more satisfied than what they would have been if they were kept in the dark, just about listening to the news and whatever else. So seeing is believing. I think my boys 
are fairly confident what's happening. They are in communication with the parents. We get to them to talk to them almost once a week or whatever. And uh, I'm fairly confident that my boys will go through it very well, as a matter of fact. We are in constant communication with them. We are boarding houses, incidentally, 100% boarding house. So all the boys here are here to stay. So we are the parents and we see to it that they don't end up in any problem with that sort. Well, please tell the students I'm very proud of them for, for sticking with it and helping. If you have a, a main message to my listeners, and my listeners are not just in America, they're oh, in Newsweek has a big international audience. What would be your main message about what's happening and what people do to help? It doesn't matter if they're Jewish, Muslim, Christian, any religion or no religion for that matter. What is your message to the people who want to get involved? I think... Overall, what I would want them to figure out is that here is a country which needs a lot of help and is going to need that for a sustained period of time. Till the time all these people who have been displaced are rehabilitated. So they need to be very judicious in what they send, how they send. I won't even mind if they contact the government and bring in some agencies the, the, the way we had a couple of uh, agencies coming to Pakistan during the 2005 uh, earthquake. They could come physically experience themselves, help us out in the whole thing. Maybe when they come from outside, they come in some, some different technology which we don't have that helps us expedite the recovery and whatever else is required to rehabilitate these people. Because the main effort is going to be now rehabilitating them, cleaning up the area and rehabilitating the people. The floods will go because the last of the lots is now passing through our area, that is Kotri uh, uh, Barrage and all these places. So most of it is going to get through this place, so you are done as with the river overflowing is concerned. Now is the main job is going to take place a very long time. Help us rehabilitate these people and where possible, get the claims from the government, come over in the form of your organizations, ask them to allot your places, help us work it out that way. Before the nation itself gets fatigued because I'm telling you, it's a long, arduous journey here onwards, rehabilitating all these people, cleaning up their areas. Before we lose too many lives, very precious lives, because they are, practically speaking, the guys who produce food for us, not only for us, for the region, the whole lot of food stuff that gets exported from Pakistan also. We need them. Not only we, the region needs them. Help us save them post-flood, as a matter of fact. So that thing should go. Flood, yes, but we had floods. Now we have to recover out of it. We may have another spell of monsoons by over this weekend, but I guess it should be a fairly weak one. It'll add some more water to whatever we have right now. But again, the way I said, we've got to look ahead, recovery post-floods. That should be the plan of action for everybody now. Figure out that all those people who are marooned, how are they going to start their life afresh. Their livestock, most of it gone, their crops are gone, their land is devastated. They have to make it cultivable. We are getting late for sowing wheat. If we don't sow it on time now, we're going to have crisis of wheat next year. That is the staple food of this country. So, a whole lot of things. Sugar cane crop affected. What's going to happen to our sugar lot? We're going to be importing sugar. Are we? Are we going to be importing wheat? United States would not want us to import cheap wheat from Russia, would you? Yeah. It's humanitarian. Between that, and, see, the wheat, United States between needs, that and the wheat, that's, that's a big problem. My dear sir, United States should realize that it is humanitarian. We need to cut corners, save 
a couple of cents here and a couple of cents there to spend it elsewhere. But if we have to stick to the policy that, okay, buy this, that is going expensive for us. So we're going to take loans for that. We take loans, who's going to pay those loans back? And you're going to keep, it's like asking us for a pound of flesh. Yep. Shylock. So you have to be realistic. If you've read my, you got to be realistic. I if, understand your point. If you, if you read uh, Shakespeare, it's Shylock out here. He's every time asking for a pound of flesh, flesh which is not there. Post-floods is going to be a skeleton. So if you have to spread a message, I would like people to come help us physically over here. You've got a lot of organizations outside who, does, uh, who do recovery work. Help us do that because I'm sure they're going to come with the way I said earlier, some equipment which we don't have, some technology or techniques which we may not have. We learn from them and some they will learn from us. Probably they may learn how not to do it, but still they learn something. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, retired Air Commander Nayar Kawaja, thank you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts at this difficult moment. You know, God bless you and your country. I hope uh, people do come out and uh, take your advice and help the way they need to help. And hopefully you'll get through this with as little damage as possible and, and become stronger from it again. So thank you again for your time. Thank you very much for the patient listening. Well, folks, a very, very rough situation in Pakistan right now. I'm glad Nair was able to come on The Diplomat and describe for us this terrible disaster and how we can help. We did manage to touch upon politics, Pakistan-India, Pakistan-Israel, Russia, and more. But of course, politics affects everything. We also touched a bit on religion. After all, I'm a Jew and he's a Muslim living in a country with no diplomatic relations with Israel. Some of Pakistan's politicians have said some very nasty, untrue things about Israel, but this episode was about humanity, not politics. It was about trying to learn about people who are suffering because of the flooding and how people who want to get involved can help. We can deal with other politics and Pakistan's view on Israel at a later time. Now's the time to focus on helping people. We can leave conflicts to a later date. On that note, I do want to point out a comment Nair made toward the end of that episode. He was discussing Pakistan's need to buy wheat from Russia so that Pakistan can pay competitive prices for wheat and perhaps other goods that they may need to buy from Russia. He acknowledged that buying from Russia may anger the United States. He then made the point that if the U.S. frowns on Pakistan buying from Russia, Pakistan would need to take out loans to make purchases at higher prices, and who would pay the interest on those loans? He referenced the Shakespeare character Shylock, and he mentioned the pound of flesh reference from that Shakespeare play. I'm well aware of numerous anti-Semitic remarks coming from some Pakistani officials. A recent one was when the former Pakistani foreign minister made anti-Semitic remarks in a CNN television interview while discussing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Then Foreign Minister Shah Mahmoud Qureshi told a CNN anchor, Biana Goldraiga, that Israel is losing, quote, the media war despite their connections, end quote. Biana asked the Pakistani leader to explain these so-called connections, and the foreign minister replied that they, meaning Israel, are very influential people, and that they, again meaning Israel, control the media. Biana immediately made clear that she would call that an anti-Semitic remark, good for Biana. To give more color on Shylock, I want to refer to a July 2016 Washington Post interview by Steve Frank. Steve studied classical languages and literature as a Woodrow Wilson Fellow at Columbia University. He's also an attorney and writer in Washington, D.C. 
The headline of that opinion is, The Merchant of Venice Perpetuates Vile Stereotypes of Jews. So why do we still produce it? Let's give this Shakespeare play a rest from the stage. Great headline, great point. Steve quotes literary critic Harold Bloom, who said, One would have to be blind, deaf, and dumb not to recognize that Shakespeare's grand equivocal comedy, The Merchant of Venice, is a profoundly anti-Semitic work. Steve continued his piece by saying that it's time to never again use this historical aberration. Every time The Merchant of Venice is produced, he says, it introduces new audience to vile medieval tropes of Jew hatred that we should have left long ago behind. No matter one how liberally interpret Shakespeare's intentions or the theme of the plays he describes, it's impossible to ignore its sickening anti-Semitic language. Shylock, he says, the Jewish villain of the play, loans money to Antonio, then demands strict compliance with the terms of the loan, a pound of Antonio's flesh, when Antonio defaults on the loan. Shylock is throughout the play referred to as a kind of devil, the devil himself, the very devil incarnate, the devil in the likeness of a Jew, and a cruel devil. Listeners, I don't know whether Nyer intended that reference to be anti-Semitic, anti-American, both, or neither. I just met him for the first time. I have no reason to think he's anti-Semitic, and the conversation itself suggested he isn't. I do want to point out what he said did not go unnoticed. I struggled with the comment while he was on the screen talking to me, and I tried in the moments that he was talking to me to determine what he might have meant. I also could have chosen to confront him and asked him what he meant by the use of the word Shylock. I decided in the context of how he said the word, he spoke of it when speaking of having to borrow money if the U.S. did not allow them to buy more competitively priced wheat from Russia. I decided not to dwell on that comment. Not everything is about anti-Semitism, and I didn't want to divert the very reason for the podcast, which was to help people who are suffering in Pakistan from devastating floods and transform that conversation into something else. I'll fight clear anti-Semitism whenever it appears, and if I have the opportunity to chat with Nair again, and I may decide to reach out to him and ask him, I'll ask him what he meant by the comment and if he knows how offensive the use of the word Shylock could be. I'll gently probe and try to understand if he understands the history and the nature of that word, of the pound of flesh, of the merchant of Venice. And if I sense he did understand it, and used it intentionally, well, then I guess I missed that opportunity to call him out the way Bianca Goldraga did on CNN. Good for her, and I'll learn to do better. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.